Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The price of carbon in Europe is at record highs. Could the world's biggest and most sophisticated carbon market provide a model for the world? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Schanberg, finance editor at The Economist. Also on today's show, we hear from the founder of the world's largest independent digital bank about how the pandemic has supercharged the fintech revolution. And from the schoolyard to the stock exchange, the craze for sports cards reveals the growing financial power of social networks. But first, carbon markets are a way of pricing pollution by issuing tradable permits for emissions. And they're growing fast. Last year, the global carbon market value hit a record $278 billion, a five-fold increase from 2017. The European Union's Emissions Trading System, or ETS, is by far the biggest and most liquid in the world. Around a billion euros of emissions allowances change hands each day. The system's champions argue this is proof of the role the market can play in fighting climate change. For a long time, the system wasn't working very well at all. It had kind of big problems with an oversupply of allowances and, and they allowed too many kind of cheap offsets into the scheme. And that push prices to almost zero. Guy Scriven is The Economist's climate risk correspondent. And then around 2018, uh, the European Commission introduced a scheme which sucked the kind of excess allowances out of the system. And that helped prices pick up again. So in the last few months, what we've seen is a, is, is a real kind of acceleration in the price. Uh, it's jumped about kind of 60% since the beginning of November. In February, prices reached about €40 Euros per tonne, which, which is a record high. And why is the price of carbon on the European market now hitting new highs? Untangling what exactly is having the most impact is a bit tricky. There are various kind of short-term factors. In Europe, the weather's been kind of colder than usual. And uh, when it's cold, people need more heating and that drives up emissions. And, and so demand for allowances and so the price. There are kind of technical reasons why extra emissions weren't allocated into the system via auctions uh, in January. That constrains supply. And then there are kind of other factors here at play. In December, the EU leaders agreed to increase the ambition of their emissions reduction target for 2030 from 40% reduction compared to 1990 levels to a 55% reduction compared to 1990 levels. And that's likely to affect prices too. On top of that, some of the players within the market uh, seem to be having an impact as well. So uh, industrial firms seem to have started their kind of hedging activity in which they buy emissions or futures early in order to make sure that rises in carbon prices don't ruin the, the, their investment plans. And in addition to that, 
there seems to be a kind of growing role for uh, financial firms in the market purely to speculate and, and try to turn a profit. So there's lots going on here. Now, you mentioned the industrial firms and the financial firms. Give us a sense of who the big players are in the market. So I think there are kind of three big categories of players. Uh, The first are utilities like uh, RWE in Germany, and they tend to buy allowances at kind of daily auctions and they use them to, to, to cover their emissions and occasionally to kind of hedge against future price increases. The second group are industrial firms. They will buy kind of some of their allowances at auctions as well, but they're also given a, a large chunk of their allowances for free. Uh, and that's a mechanism designed to stop carbon leakage. And carbon leakage is uh, a process whereby bits of the kind of manufacturing get outsourced to countries with lesser emission standards. And so emissions aren't actually reduced. These two first groups are required to hold uh, allowances equivalent to their annual emissions. And that kind of contrasts with the third group, which are financial firms. So that includes kind of investment banks like Goldman Sachs and and Morgan Stanley, as well as some hedge funds. They're just in the market for profit. And, you know, they make money by either offering services connected to trading carbon emission allowances or by speculating, uh, usually in the kind of futures or, or options markets. And what do these new record prices mean for these various big players? Some will be pleased and some will be kind of essentially unaffected. So a, a, a lot of the big utilities, you know, will have hedged against big swings in the prices. So they should be kind of protected. But within the kind of group of financial firms, uh, some of the speculators uh, stand to benefit quite handsomely from the recent increase in price. Uh, we've seen kind of more speculators enter the market. So within the futures market, uh, there are perhaps 230 investment funds up from about 140 at the end of 2019. These speculators kind of long positions, which are, which are bets that the carbon price will increase, roughly doubled since November. And some see this as, as, as kind of pushing the price as well as benefiting from the price increase. Now, how is the role of these financial institutions changing the market? So one thing that may be happening is that the, it seems to be getting a bit more sophisticated. So uh, one source told me that, that that previously the prices were kind of very much steered by meetings, you know, at the EU Commission and, and decisions made there. Um, and now other kind of aspects are having a bigger role. Macroeconomic indicators like the release of GDP data and, and, and so forth. Some people in the market argue that it causes more volatility as kind of hedge funds bet on changing prices. They kind of add more volatility into the system. Others kind of argue that it actually adds more liquidity. The market gets deeper and, you know, certainly uh, some utilities told me that they kind of welcome the changes because the greater liquidity means it's easier for them to to kind of hedge against future price increases. What impact does the EU ETS actually have on carbon emissions? Well, where it's kind of applied properly, it does seem to be working. What you'll see is that the, the kind of power sector who have to kind of comply fully and aren't given any of these free allowances have decarbonized a lot since the launch of the EU ETS, and particularly in the last couple of years when the, when the price has moved to a kind of meaningful level. Um, And if you compare that to the kind of industrial sector, 
Uh, very little has happened in terms of decarbonisation there. Their emissions have, 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 have barely changed. Since the ETS seems to be a good thing all round, what next for the future of carbon trading? Can Europe's system link up with other markets around the world? Yes, so the EU ETS can link up with other markets. And there's possibility that through a kind of carbon border tax that could connect the EU ETS with California's cap and trade scheme and also with the regional greenhouse gas initiative, which is a cap and trade scheme uh, among the uh, northeastern states in America. Although it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do to get a kind of carbon border tax right. No one's done it before. There's lots of questions about the design of the mechanism. Probably more likely than that is that the EU ETS will kind of expand into other sectors. Uh, at the moment, it covers about 45% of the continent's emissions. So one sector that may be absorbed, you know, within the next few years is, is the kind of shipping sector. And there are also plans to perhaps launch a kind of different carbon trading scheme for buildings and emissions from road transport too, and maybe link those to the EU ETS in the future. If it is done correctly and the EU ETS could, can avoid kind of, you know, problems that's plagued it in the past, like oversupply and low prices, then this could be a kind of real model for uh, how a kind of market-based emissions trading scheme can work successfully. Uh, loads of countries are, are trying to implement emissions trading schemes. The EU has a kind of potential here to, to, to make the EU2S, if successful, a kind of real model for the rest of the world. Guy Scriven, thank you very much. The world seems to be at an inflection point in terms of political will and ability to make concrete progress against climate change. Much will hinge on what Joe Biden is able to achieve in his first term as President of the United States. For more on Mr Biden's attempt to decarbonise America, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer for a special introductory rate for listeners. You can find the link in the notes for this episode. 
I couldn't help but wonder that there was a way you know, for things to be different. That we weren't just sentenced to stand in a line in a crowded branch talking to people that couldn't care less. Christina Junkira is one of the founders of Newbank. Mathieu Favas, our finance correspondent, interviewed her for Money Talks. We were born, well, out of outrage <laughs> to begin with, but out of this belief that um, using technology, using design, we could offer people a much better experience, you know, to use data much more broadly to eliminate processes altogether, to make the customer experience much more simple. There were two things that we did very early on that, you know, it just blew people's minds. One of them was uh, giving them the ability to adjust themselves, their credit card line, you know? So we just gave them a slider and we're like, here's the maximum amount that we can give you, like, but you choose how much is good for you up to that maximum. The other example that I'll give you is like customers in Brazil are pretty addicted to interest-free installment purchases that's often offered by the merchants. And, and people would lose track of how many installments they, they owed still like in the future. And since the beginning, we showed people like how many installments they had. Like, and, and this allowed them to have much more visibility of how much of their future income was already committed. This is just, again, another like simple way to show transparency and to give people uh, a better framework to make better financial decisions. Since you mentioned them, could we talk a bit more perhaps about your, your customers, so who they are, how old they are, and how COVID perhaps has expanded your consumer base? Because uh, critics sometimes say Newbank is great for millennials um, and young affluent people, but less so for uh, poorer, older or more remote folk. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, of course, when we started, we first attracted um, early adopters and people that were more tech savvy. By the time you were, you're serving 34 million people, it's just a lot of people. So a third of our customers are older than millennials today, uh, which means over 10 million people, right? More and more people... Uh, came in and they they uh, refer their parents and you know their aunts and uncles and potentially like an older coworker and so on. It's been interesting to see like over thirty thousand accounts like being opened for people over sixty since the beginning of the pandemic. Like they didn't want to uh, be left with sending at a at a branch like for hours to get like any service. We've seen. Uh, growing adoption of contactless transactions. I don't know, numbers that we would only expect like five years from now to to be reached within less than a year. Could I ask about your business model? Uh, so the, the secret sauce, wh where you make money and how different it is from the old banking system, but also from the neo banks in Europe, which actually don't really make money. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because um, unlike... You know, you've, you've cited the, the European digital banks. We've started with credit cards, right? And credit cards have a, a very simple model, right? Like you can charge a fee here or there. Like we don't, but people could. Um, but there's also interchange revenue that comes from, you know, a little percentage out of every transaction that is made. And also, of course, financing revenue when people uh, refinance their, their, their uh, credit card purchases. And, and we make money from that. And, and the younger cohorts of people that have been with us for a while, they're all making money. We haven't turned like a, an accounting profit yet because we keep reinvesting all the contribution margin that comes from those uh, customers and from this mature business as credit card to to grow in other areas. But it's not like our, our business model is going to dramatically change. Like it has always relied less on charging just a fee for everything, which is what the incoming banks often do. We're more concerned about finding those efficiencies so that we can pass on those savings in the form of 
uh, no fees or lower fees or lower interest rates onto customers. And we're going to continue to make money where we're supposed to, you know, when, when they actually finance purchases or in other types of revenues that are intrinsic to the products that they consume. So something that you did last year that intrigued me is a, a partnership that you sealed with WhatsApp uh, alongside two traditional banks, so Banco de Brasil and, and Secredit, that is, is bound to let 120 million Brazilians, we use the messaging service, make payments through it as well. What impact do you expect it to have? It hasn't been fully authorized by the Brazilian Central Bank. Uh, but, you know, if and when it is, uh, we believe it's going to be a, a very important piece of uh, just making instant and, and, and free payments much more accessible. Brazilians are very used to using instant messaging, uh, more so than the U.S. for sure, where tech, because of just structurally how text messages were charged in Brazil and, and they weren't in the U.S., so there's a lot to gain from um, having a ubiquitous instant payment system. And on top of those rails, of course, there's PICS, which is the, the, the Brazilian central bank's like instant payment rails um, that eventually is going to be plugged into the WhatsApp Pay, I'm sure. And that uh, has already like been put into place and has been growing like exponentially. Nowhere else in the world have we seen like such fast adoption for, for instant payments like we saw with PICS um, here in Brazil, even before WhatsApp. So there's a lot to be optimistic about. So, so if, if, um, if I perhaps play the devil's advocate just a little bit, even though interest may be aligned at the beginning, uh, I'm just interested to, to understand if, if you think that in the end, they might end up eating your lunch, these big tech companies. Well, I believe truly innovative companies. They, they long for the future to arrive sooner. And they are quick and to adapt and to understand the implications for their own business model and to pivot if necessary, right? So go figure, like maybe, you know, payments are going to evolve to be unbundled and maybe some of the margins are going to be competed away here and there. I think the best thing that we do to, you know, to prepare and to plan for scenarios like that one is to have a deep connection to our customers and to, to hold on to the customer relationship. And it's something that we are much better positioned to, to develop and, and to uh, deepen than big tech companies. And so, you know, everything you explained today uh, suggests this is just the beginning of the digital revolution in finance. Can I ask, what, what, what is the end game, do you think, for, for you at Newbank? What sort of uh, firm do you want to become? One of the things that we know is that there's always going to be complexity to be fought. More, like, interesting ways for us to improve people's lives, give them more control over their finances. I think the latest trend is, is customers asking us for mortgages because they're so complex. Like ever since we, we launched the credit cards, people have been asking us for uh, an account. And after we had that account, they wanted the debit card and they wanted lending and they wanted insurance. And of course we've taken steps. So we recently acquired Easy Invest, uh, the largest digital broker, like investment broker in Brazil. So that has helped us significantly expand our product offering on the investment space, which is a, a key space for us to continue to, to grow towards becoming um, a financial services platform. We want to be the type of company that leverages technology. So we definitely see ourselves as a tech company first, not necessarily as a financial institution. Um, but again, that continues to obsess over what customers care about. So I guess that's the, that's the most important thing in the long run to continue to be uh, obsessing over that. Well, we'll, we'll keep on uh, watching how your obsession develops. But in the meantime, uh, many thanks, Christina Junqueira. No, thank you. It's been great. Mathieu and Christina touched on the growth of retail investing with Newbank's recent acquisition of digital broker Easy Invest. 2021 began with the most dramatic manifestation of that trend yet. 
the explosion of interest in GameStop and other so-called meme stocks, driven by huge activity on the chat forum Reddit. At the same time, another equally unlikely-sounding hot asset is also seeing a surge, egged on by social media, sports cards. In early February, a card depicting the basketball player Michael Jordan sold for a record $738,000 at auction. The same card had gone for a little over $200,000 just weeks earlier. The hashtag sports card investing is gathering momentum on sites like TikTok, with videos of mostly young men dispensing tips and giddily unboxing their latest purchases. This is how to make money with sports cards part four. I just tripled my investment with these Tiger Wood rookie cards. Oh, 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 yo! oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. The enthusiasm has spread with the creation of specialised asset management companies and platforms like Collectible, which enable fractional trading of shares in high-value cards. So how did this latest trading craze make it from the schoolyard to Wall Street? So when I was a kid back in the 1980s and 1990s, I got really into collecting baseball cards. Ryan Avent writes Free Exchange, our weekly column on economics. As time went on, we sort of got more and more into the question of what these cards were worth. And you could buy a publication called Beckett's Baseball Card Monthly, which would have prices for all these different cards in it. You can sort of month to month look and see what your portfolio of trading cards was doing over time. Eventually, as prices kind of went up and up and up, some adults started to pay attention and uh, uh, you know, this was touted as an alternative investment category that you could get into. But what happened back then was the bubble popped. There have been a lot of innovations in the trading card space, I think partly to kind of address the lack of scarcity that, that was an issue back in the 80s and 90s. And so you can buy trading cards now that have pieces of a, a player's jersey embedded in them. You've got these sort of newfangled things called non-fungible tokens which kind of combine the trading card experience with cryptocurrency. And you pay for this cryptographically uh, encoded, protected video of a sports highlight of a player you like, uh, you know, hitting a home run or dunking a basketball. And the prices of some of these things are, are going up into uh, five and six and seven figures. That's fascinating, Ryan. And what explains the current surge of interest in collectible sports cards? Is this another consequence of the fact that interest rates are ultra low? I mean, I think the, you know, what's going on in the macro economy kind of is the the first story that people start to tell. Obviously, asset prices for a lot of things have been going up uh, quite a bit over the last few years. It's houses, stocks, bonds, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And so you, to some degree, this is sort of part of that same story. But I think there's also this other phenomena at work. You know, what we're really seeing is uh, the intrusion of kind of social networking and the way in which social networking has come to have a bigger and bigger effect on many aspects of society playing out in this space. And I think what we're discovering is that the, the ability of social networking to bring together, you know, not just small groups of friends, but hundreds, thousands, millions of people all over the world to pour into different investment categories can cause these things to just blow up in an extraordinary way. And, and I think the right way to think about the social aspect of investing is something that's not, you know, increasingly not just confined to these sort of hobbyist categories, but also bleeding into what you might call proper financial markets, the stock market and things of that nature. Tell us how this social network effect relates to classic behavioral economics. 
So behavioral economists and, and people who study behavioral finance have done a lot of interesting work over the past uh, couple decades to sort of look at ways in which humans are not exactly perfectly irrational when they come to financial markets and invest. They have all these sorts of cognitive biases. But I think increasingly behavioral economists are also thinking in terms of what you might call social finance and the way in which uh, cognitive biases or, or patterns of investing that aren't just about what's happening in the, the individual's head, but they're about his relationship to other people in a social network. If a person you know makes an investment, that might make you more likely to make a similar investment for a few reasons. Uh, you might think that they have unique information about the investment that makes it a good buy and you want to benefit from that as well. You might be worried about missing out. But then also the fact that you've both invested in the same thing creates opportunities for people to interact socially and have a good time. You talk about the sports, uh, what's happening with the prices. This is something that's always been there in the background of financial markets. In Manhattan or in London, you know, traders would talk about these things. It's a very social environment, a lot of word of mouth. But the, the movement of this discussion online, I think, just creates huge opportunities, compounded, I think, by the development of all these retail trading platforms. And so you've got this, this whole social phenomenon really just exploding right before our eyes. But social networks have been an influence on financial markets for a while. Why should the introduction of social media be a particular cause for concern? I think there might be some things about it that, that could be cause for concern. And there's a few examples. You know, one would be something that we saw to a certain extent during the GameStop phenomenon, which is that if you have crowds of people whose interest in an investment is primarily about the social side of it, that it's a it's almost a consumption experience. They they buy the the stock as sort of a membership fee to belong in this community. What that means is the, the, the stock price might not behave in the way that it, that it normally would. And people who might normally sell a stock short because they thought it was overvalued were very reluctant to do that because they didn't want to get burned by this community that really didn't seem to care much about the relationship between the stock price and the underlying fundamentals of the, the company. So to the extent that we want our financial markets to have some relationship between you know, underlying economic assets and have something to do with kind of the efficient allocation of capital, the growth in the number of participants who are doing this for fun can definitely affect how that process works. On the other side, I think you have to worry a little bit about, about some of the new participants in financial markets who are coming to trading through hobbies that they love or through uh, social groups that their friends are in. You know, you've got these sort of network effects and the most influential people in a social network can make out really well, directing people towards investments and they can end up making a lot of money. Some of the latecomers end up holding the bag. And I think so long as that everyone kind of understands what the game is, that ends up not being a huge problem. But I think inevitably there's going to be people who overextend themselves, who don't understand the risks that are involved and who end up taking some pretty big losses. And to take us back to where we started, Ryan, are you tempted to um, to return to the market now that there's so much action here? <laughs> I'm sort of tempted to go back in, in, into the attic uh, where I keep all the, the cards from ages ago and, and see if any of them are, are worth anything today. I don't know if I would uh, want to take the plunge on a, you know, a cryptographically protected video of a favorite player hitting a home run. I, I'd probably prefer to have something I can hold in my hand. Maybe that makes me old fashioned. Ryan Avon, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us, or even better, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Shanbog, the producer's Amika Shortino-Nolan, and in London, this is The Economist.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.